Sin acknowledges and pays respects to the owners of the land, the house of Sin, and the studio stands, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin also acknowledges and pays respects to the elders and traditional owners of the land our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. And welcome to another Wednesday edition of the Sports Desk. I'm Tom Parry, and this is our final episode for Season 1, so we're going to be going out with a bang by looking back at some of the best moments from the past few weeks of the show. Included in today's episode are our discussions about Holden's demise and what that means for the future of motorsport in Australia, my adventures at the T20 Cricket World Cup, our interview with Jack Teeson from RMIT's tennis team, and at the very end we'll be reliving our favourite moments of sport from the 2010s. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Sin, we're always on. And our very first discussion of the day comes from week four in which I was joined by Daniel from Get Serial to talk about the end of Holden and what that means for motorsport in Australia. Daniel, I might ask you, where were you on Monday when you heard the news about Holden's demise? I think I was at work and I just saw I saw like someone share a breaking news thing on Facebook mm. and I I always know because they stopped making like Holden as I remember there was some news about Holden in the past few mm. years about them stopping something mm-hmm. so I'm like oh what's this but it's a complete stop now yes so what happened was in 2017 they stopped manufacturing cars in Australia but the brand still kept going so okay. they import their vehicles from overseas now and it's gotten to the stage where General Motors have not seen it as commercially viable to keep selling cars in Australia okay. under the Holden brand so they just pulled the plug altogether And it actually caught a lot of people off guard, including people within the motorsport community. But a lot of other people in the industry have said this has been a long time coming because sales are going downhill. It's costing too much to develop the cars specifically for Australia. So Mm. they're just going to... Give up. Yeah, I heard someone, I saw someone like post kind of their opinion on Instagram or Facebook. They're like, this is what happens when they fail to innovate. And so. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think it's more of a marketing problem, really, yeah, that be. they had with the company. But we're not here to talk you know, about, yeah, yeah, debate l- on that. <laughs> yeah, lament about the company. We're here to talk about what this means for motorsport because for years there's been this huge rivalry between. Holden and Ford. I've always been part of a Holden household. I don't know about you, Daniel. I don't know, really. No, I remember my dad having a Ford jacket, but I think he just liked the jacket. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And, yes, so there's been this huge rivalry between Holden and Ford for years, first on the Australian touring car circuit, and then later when it became V8 supercars. And, you know, there's a very passionate fan base on both sides. Yeah. And... 
now that uh, Holden has gone, or, or, or will be going altogether, rather, it leaves the sport in a very uh, dangerous place because we're not going to have that rivalry anymore. We're not going to have Holdens racing around the track. It's just going to be uh, one-sided steamrolling by Ford. It's just going to be Mustangs on the circuit and nothing Ford else. Ford automatically wins the rivalry, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> there has been some talk as well that Chevrolet might potentially replace the Holden brand in Australia. It's like a niche automaker, similar to what uh, McLaren and okay. Lamborghini and all that do. But even so, there was somebody at uh, the Adelaide Grand Prix yesterday, and I can't remember who it was, but they said losing Holden is like losing Collingwood from the AFL. Like, it just, it's a brand that means so much to people right. and brings out so much passion in people that, you know, it, its loss would be devastating. And Holden has been the most successful uh, company in this format. I mean, it's won more Australian touring car championships than anybody else. It's had more Sandown victories, more Bathurst 1000 victories. It's had more V8 supercar championships. So, yeah. It's crazy. And surely they can't... Why wouldn't they be able to like make a special like V8 car once a year to keep them alive? Is that just not a thing? So, they have been, in a sense, because at the moment, Holden, or rather one of their subsidiaries, has been importing the Camaro and mm-hmm. converting it to right-hand drive. And I think that particular part of the business is still going, but it's like their general passenger vehicles, so like the Commodore, the Mm -hmm. Astro, the Colorado, they're not going to sell them under the Holden name anymore. Crazy. It's really crazy to think about it. And it's not just um, on the track, it's also off-road motorsport. I know that Holden had a very strong presence there, Mm -hmm. so that loss is going to be felt as well. And... The, having lost Holden, it brings the whole future of the supercars competition into question because, as we've said, this relies so much on the Holden v Ford rivalry and they've tried in years past to bring in like Nissan, Volvo, Mercedes to try and uh, sort of generate more interest in the competition and it hasn't worked. It's gone to the point where Nissan pulled out just last year, Volvo and Mercedes are gone and we're left with uh, the Ford Mustang up against the Holden Commodore. There you go. That's it. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, it's quite a shock, hey? It, it's a lot to take in, Daniel, yeah. I know. So um, <laughs> where do you think this leaves the future of motorsport? Do you think that supercars will still be viable now that Holden's no longer there, or do you think it's just going to fall by the wayside? Well, is there any chance for other companies to step up now? Do they see it as like an opportunity? Well, Mercedes-Benz have said that they want to make a return to the competition, okay. so there is a possibility there. But unless they can find like one of those full-sized V8 vehicles, and I can't think of many, if any, other companies that have got a V8 in their lineup at the moment. So, yeah, it looks like it's just going to perish unfortunately supercars but with that said it gives an opportunity for the smaller competition so for example the Carrera Cup the two litre competition the super utes it will give them the opportunity to sort of you know reignite interest in their brand and sort of increase or rather generate interest in their competition as well so it does leave a good some positive but Mm. unfortunately quite some negative there yeah so for the supercars competition is not so good for everyone else. You know, there's the potential that things are looking up. But it's going to be strange no longer seeing a Commodore wind around Bathurst. I mean, I mean, I know they have, like, the 12-hour race and the 24-hour race there, mm-hmm. and it's awesome seeing that. But, you know, no one really wants to see a Ferrari win Bathurst. They, they <laughs> want to see a Ford or a Holden. Like, yeah, he, okay. they would take a Ford win, most Holden fans, over seeing, like, a Porsche cross the line first. That's... <laughs> how strongly they feel about this. So, 
Yeah, it's a very traumatic time for Holden fans everywhere. Um, here's hoping that the sport can recover. Um, I have my doubts, but you know I've been proven wrong in the past. So okay. <laughs> yeah, here's hoping is all we can say. Here is hoping. <laughs> Sin, where young people run the show. Soft memories of youthful days. Now we are reliving our favourite moments from the past few weeks of Sports Desk, and coming up now is a discussion I had with Jacob Scanlon, a regular co-host of this season, about my adventures at the Junction Oval and the Women's 2020 Cricket World Cup. Tom, so you were actually at the Games on Monday, the T20, uh, T20 Cricket Games. Yes, indeed, I was, Jacob. I've been saying on Sports Desk to take the kids out of school, you know, just head along to the game, doesn't matter what's happening, just go see it. Mm. And I thought I should practice what I preach and actually go along to one of these games. And so I did. And it was a great day, but I very nearly didn't get into the ground. Yeah? It was at capacity... And most of the tickets have been sold, and as soon as I got to the, the ticket box, there was a very polite young gentleman, whose name I don't remember, who said, uh, we're all packed out, but if you wait around for a few minutes, we might have some spare tickets come up on the screen. And within seconds of him saying that, two tickets came up on the screen. So me and my friend were able to get into the ground, and I had an absolutely ripper day. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's some great luck, actually. It is uh, incredible so luck. The two games you saw. Mm. So you saw the um, Australia and New Zealand clash. Yes. And the Sri Lanka and Bangladesh games. How were they? So the Sri Lanka and Bangladesh games, unfortunately, I only caught the tail end of them, but it was a bit of a fizzer because in the end, Sri Lanka won quite convincingly. It was their only win of the tournament, but they scored, well, they won by nine wickets with four overs to spare. And the player of the match was Shashi Kala Sira Wardenar, and that was her final game of uh, cricket ever. She is going to retire from international competitive cricket now, and she says that she does have a future in cricket. She's going to continue being part of the game, just not in the capacity of a player. So, you know, kind of fitting send-off for her Yeah, there. it sounds like a I really thought. nice send-off. And I imagine the... Um, well, you were there, but I mm. imagine the crowd was really um, nice about it and, you know, gave her a... Bit of an applause. Yes. The so the crowd send-off. was slightly smaller at that time of day, but yeah, very warm send off there. And the Sri Lankan contingent, you know, you've seen them at the men's games. Mm. They are absolutely loud, boisterous, got behind everything. Oh yeah, they're they're such a passionate crowd. They are a very passionate crowd. So it was yeah a short match, but you know it was kind of heartwarming, mm. I guess, to see that there. And then after that, we of course had the headline game, which was between Australia and New Zealand. This was do or die for Australia. They needed to win this match to stay in the competition. And, of course, they did. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> mm. And so I, I, I remember seeing here and there uh, that this game was great, that everyone seems to just love this one. Yes. It was like an absolutely fantastic game, and I'm so glad I saw, saw it live. What happened was that New Zealand won the coin toss. They sent Australia into bat, which I thought was quite interesting. And Australia ended up making five for 155 after 20 overs, which is a phenomenal score in 2020, let alone the women's Mm. game. So that was incredible. The top scorer there was Beth Mooney with 60, uh, but everyone in the team, they made a significant contribution. Mm. And yeah, it looked like it was easily Australia's game after that. I was absolutely convinced we'd win. And then New Zealand came in and they put in a solid fight. I have to say, like th- there were so many ebbs and flows in that game. It just went mm. up and down consistently. And there were times when I thought that New Zealand would run away with it and other times when I thought Australia would could possibly win. Uh, 
like you know that feeling when you don't know how a game's going to turn out and you're oh, really yeah, nervous it, and you're just leaning forward and you want to chew your fingernails? That's how it felt like for a few overs in that game. It was just like you really wanted Australia to win, but uh, yeah, in the end they did quite comfortably. Um, I think New Zealand had something like 21 runs to hit off the final over, and even though they only lost by five runs, you know, it, by the third last or second to last ball, it was pretty obvious that... Yeah, Australia had the game. So even though the scores look close, yeah, Australia won convincingly. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say this is the type of game that's um, you keep, as you keep saying, bring your kids out, yeah. take them to a game. This would have been a perfect game for a kid to get into cricket with. It was absolutely, and there were actually kids there. I saw yeah. primary school age kids, high school age kids. Some were just with their mates, some were with their parents and grandparents. There were a lot of older people there at the ground, actually. Yeah. So, so a lot of baby boomers, a lot of pensioners there who came along to see the game, which is great, mm. but it just kind of threw me a little bit because you're so used to seeing all these like young 20-something, 30-something males at the cricket. But no, I'm very pleased that people did turn out to this game. It was a capacity crowd. I think the official figures were 3,144, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you try and pack that many people into the Junction Oval, yeah, it yeah, that, that's a big uh, it number did. for the uh, Junction. It is, and it's also worth noting that a few people, particularly a couple sitting behind me, said that they could have easily fitted like another 100, 200 people into that stadium because there were some empty seats in there. Mm. I was in the Ironmonger stand, which is the one closest to the big corporate box that they have at the city end of the ground. And, yeah, I was looking over my shoulder a few times. I said, oh, there's a few people here who, you know, could fill up the seats. But with that said, there were people on the grass. There were people out and about at all the food stands. So, yeah, I reckon that the crowd they had there, the ICC will be pleased with that. Yeah, mm. without a doubt. It's mm. a great turnout. Great to see all ages. Yes. Especially on a Monday morning. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. of course, the game started on a Monday morning, went through into the afternoon. I think because it started at 3 o'clock, that's what um, enticed some people to go to the game. So it's school knockoff time. Ah, yeah. You can just bring the kids along to that. But with that said, in order to get to the ground, you would have had to physically gone to the school and got the kids out early anyway. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, there were a couple of... Uh, Low light, shall we say, in the match. One was Elise Perry, who got a significant hamstring injury while she was fielding. So everyone was concerned about her shoulder, but it was her leg at the end of the day that uh, gave out on her. And she is going to miss the rest of the Women's World Cup and the upcoming tour of South Africa because of that injury. I have to say, the crowd is right behind her. Like There was a bit of concern before the game that her shoulder would uh, stop her from playing and that she'd be replaced by either Sophie Molyneux or Molly Strano, one of the two Victorians. But no, Elise was in the final 11 and she got the most rapturous applause when she um, was announced and when she walked onto the ground. So, yeah, everyone loves Elise. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, just your opinion here. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, she's gonna, her missing at all would uh, have an effect on the game against uh, South Africa later in the month? I don't believe it will because Elise hasn't really fired up this tournament. I mean, the mm. game here at the Junction Oval, she scored, where's her scorecard here? 21, which is a pretty respectable score. And that's the high score she's had all tournament. And she really is more of a bowler anyway. So I think yeah. there will definitely be other people in the team who can cover her. Uh, for the remainder of the Australian summer. Well, it's autumn now, obviously, but y- you know what I'm saying, yeah. Jacob. Uh, what, what else happened in the game yesterday? Well, 
We had uh, high scorers in the New Zealand game. Katie Martin top scored a 37. The captain, Sophie Devine, scored a quick fire 31 until she was stumped by Healy. She was absolutely impressive behind the stumps. Mm-hmm. Yep, so two stumpings there in the New Zealand team. Um, yeah, I think that's just about all I've covered from the AusNZ game. But yeah, it was an incredible day out. There is the men's T20 tournament coming later in the year. I recommend that everybody get along to that as well because it's just Definitely. an absolutely fantastic day. And one last thing, I did bring a female friend of mine along who showed no interest in cricket whatsoever. She's never even been to a game and she was absolutely wrapped in the day. Like She is just following oh, yeah. With, the without sport. Without a doubt, yeah. if, if you've got a friend who's not into cricket or mm. you know someone who you know has been on the fence of, maybe I want to get into this, mm. maybe you know I follow a bit of baseball maybe you know bring them along and if you shout them a ticket i'm sure they'll uh, they'll come and they'll enjoy the day even if it's not for the cricket itself the crowds mm. are um the crowds are always so much fun to be in oh yeah and the crowd was on top of things as well i, th- I remember that there was the 100 run or 50 run partnership even that happened and then immediately after that it was beth mooney's half century and as soon as she hit the ball the crowd just went off it's just like yeah i'm yeah. beth it's, it's great to see and you know as I said, bring people there. Get more people into cricket because it, it's a game that everyone loves. It is. It absolutely is. More people should get into cricket. Mm. That is the one thing that you should take away from our discussion today. Jacob Scanlon and myself there talking about the Women's 2020 Cricket World Cup and the match that took place at the Junction Oval, one of my undoubted highlights of the season and quite possibly the year. On FM, on DAB+, and streaming online at sin.org.au. This is Sin. We young people run the show. Boys in Town by The Vinyls. This is the Sports Desk on Sin with me, Tom Parry. Coming up right now is an interview, our very first for the year, that was all the way back in week seven of this program. It's with somebody from the RMIT University tennis team. It's time for our very first guest of the season. Yes, very exciting. So we have Jack Thiessen the captain of the RMIT University tennis team. Hmm. Men's Welcome. captain, we, we should stress. Men's captain, yes. 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 Welcome. Welcome, Jack. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. We're it's very great to pl- have you. Yeah, very pleased to have you on the show. Now, first of all, can you tell us how you came to be involved with RMIT's tennis team? Yeah, well, um, obviously, I grew up playing tennis mm. and um, came to RMIT after I went to college in America mm. and saw that RMIT competed in uni nationals over on the Gold Coast. Um, and two years ago, I, I thought I would try out for the team and thankfully got in and got to meet some really good people and play some competitive tennis. So, yeah, I got I got into tennis at RMIT through the Uni Nationals program. Nice. And how did you come to uh, land the role of captain? I played, I've played two seasons now and I guess I, I wanted to try a leadership position within the team. So I applied and Eliza from RMIT Sport was good enough to, to let me take on the role. So, yeah, very thankful. One thing I've always been fascinated to know, because we have captains in the Davis Cup, among other tennis tournaments, how do you try to enforce your leadership in what is essentially an individual-focused sport? Yeah, it, it's a funny one. Like, tennis obviously is an individual sport, but when we compete for RMIT, we're a team, so it's it's mostly about getting us to gel as, as a complete team mm. and really getting around each other on court, supporting each other in the most positive way and just trying to enjoy the experience, I think, yeah. So you uh, very recently uh, participated in a tournament over the weekend. Uh, how'd that go? Yeah, the Pac-7 uh, tennis tournament that's um, just been launched and RMIT are competing in. 
So our first round was last weekend. We played Saturday and Sunday. Saturday we we played against um, UTS and we beat them six love, which was which was good. And then Sunday we went down to University of Sydney four two. So it was a tough one, but um, yeah, good start to the weekend for us. And the women's team was playing as well, I understand. Uh, they lost to UTS, but they did win against Sydney University. Yeah, mm. yeah, they did. Really strong start for them. They look good. They That's look good. excellent. Now, mm. so aside from you, Jack, uh, who else is on the RMIT tennis team? So for Pac-7, mm-hmm. um, we've actually got three exchange students, funnily okay. enough, um, from Germany, Austria and France. Mm. All quite good players, which is really good, but they're only here for six months, so mm. they'll play Pac-7 with us, but... Um, yeah, they won't be playing nationals, which is a shame. But yeah, three really good internationals and then two Aussies like me. So uh, yeah, you were mentioning the nationals there. When are they taking place and what kind of preparation are you doing for that? Yeah, so it's um, late September, early October. I can't remember exactly the dates. Mm. Pac-7 is a really good opportunity to mm. prepare for that for us as a team, just so we can kind of expose RMIT tennis and that it's a really good opportunity um, like Pac-7 to get involved as a team and, and play tennis against all the other unis. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's a really good opportunity for us to get on court and kind of compete as a team as a little warm-up, I guess, mm-hmm. for nationals. And we've mentioned so far like UTS, Sydney Uni, RMIT, of course. Yeah. Who are the other universities playing in the Pac-7 tournament? Uh, so there's Bond mm-hmm. is the other uni from interstate. Yeah, and then, Western Australia. Yeah. yeah, and then we've got um, Monash, Melbourne, mm-hmm. I think, Latrobe maybe as well. Okay. But um, yeah, it's quite a few. Most of the unis you'll see at nationals are competing in the tennis tournament here too. Mm-hmm. And who are you playing next in the Pac-7 tournament? Because I understand it's right throughout March. So yeah. yeah, who's your next opponent going to be? Um, I'm not sure actually. I mm. I haven't had a look at the draw. Okay. Um, I probably should know. Yes. <laughs> but we yeah, it goes through, through throughout March, pretty much every Saturday and Sunday. So it's quite a big tournament. But yeah, it's just really good. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose many of our listeners will be interested to know, Jack. How do you balance your tennis commitments with your university commitments? Because of course you are studying while also training for these tournaments yeah yeah that's right we have trainings for pac we have trainings for nationals it's not uh we don't train you know every couple of days it's kind of we train before our matches and we we train maybe before nationals we might train you know six or seven times as a group so it's not a over commitment it's quite easy to structure your studies around it we obviously try and communicate and train together as a group when everyone's available but usually you know if you're playing tennis some of us are coaching we're all out on court anyway but it's not super hard to keep your studies going and concentrate on that as well as playing tennis for RMIT it's something you can still very much do this is the sports desk on sin with Jacob and Tom we are currently chatting with Jack Teeson who is the captain of RMIT's university tennis team now, while we were talking off-air with Jack in preparation for this interview, we learned an interesting fact about you, which was that you are, or were rather, a hitting partner at the recent Australian Open. How did you land that gig? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, this is my third year doing it, actually. Mm. Um, I landed it through a connection I have at the National Academy. I used to train there as a junior growing up. I'm in at Tennis Australia, so I just got a call from them. They... Every Australian Open, you know, players come and they want to practice before matches. They want to practice before the tournament. They need people to do that with. Some players don't like hitting with each other for whatever reason. So they need hitting partners. So I got the call up to come and hit with some of the players. And thankfully, I was able to spend most of the tournament uh, this year with the women's finalist, Gabinia Mugarutha. Mm. So that? that was a really good experience. Yeah, she's very, very focused player. <laughs> 
didn't speak a lot to her, to be honest. Mm. But yeah, very focused. Her coach is really lovely. Um, but yeah, really professional player. And yeah, she did really well. She made the final. So you must have pushed her hard. I mean, for <laughs> her to get that far, surely. Uh, I hit pretty well. It's I mean, if you're a tennis player, you know that. If you hit with better players, you tend to play better um, just because the way they hit the ball, it, it comes on really sweet onto the racket. Mm-hmm. So I was able to hit pretty well. <laughs> but, yeah, she's a really professional player. So um, I think that's uh, just about all we have time for for you this morning, Jack. But if you could tell us, is there anywhere we can go online to find more information about RMIT's tennis team? Like, have you got any socials or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't have Instagram, but we feature on the RMIT sport a little bit mm-hmm. at the moment with Pac-7. But if you want to register for even the remaining of Pac-7 or for Nationals campaigns, then the RMIT sport website is the best way to go. And obviously with the club tennis we've got as well. So really broad opportunities for tennis at RMIT. Excellent. So, Jack Thiessen, once again, thank you very much for joining us on Sports mm. Desk this morning. All the best for the rest of Pack 7 and the upcoming Nationals. Hopefully we can have you on again soon. Yeah, yeah. thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Not thanks a problem. For Myself and Jacob there speaking with Jack Thiessen, the men's captain of the RMIT University tennis team who was competing as part of Pack 7 Sadly, they've had to put a hold on that for obvious reasons, but he is hoping that the competition can come roaring back to life in the weeks and months ahead. We're on your radio. We're online. We're digital. We're everywhere. Sin Media. You are listening to The Sports Desk on Sin with me, Tom Parry, and it's time for our final discussion of this episode. It comes from week eight of our program, and it has myself and Jacob Scanlon talking about our favourite sporting moments from the 2010s. Yep. Now, we're going to bring it up a little bit, make it a little bit more um, happier, I guess. Yes, with some we, of need our this. we need this. Favourite sporting moments from the 2010s. Oh, we need this so desperately it's, it's it's a it's a dull day it is a very dull day <laughs> of course this is 2020 we're into a new decade but we have been thinking about the last decade a lot over mm. the past few weeks it's been and a months. great decade for sport it was a great decade for sport um i'm going to start with my number pick number one pick and that was michael clark's 329 not out against india at the scg oh what an absolutely wonderful day now at the time, he didn't have a bat sponsor, and he was wearing the McGrath Foundation on his stickers. I, re- I reckon all those sponsors are kicking themselves now. Oh, would <laughs> be, without a doubt. Because, yeah, he managed to um, yeah make the score. And India at the time, they're not the powerhouse they are now, let's be fair. They were mm. going through a bit of a rough patch there. But um, they were still one of the best teams in cricket, and... Uh, the Australian team at the time. It was, you know, a bit loose, a bit wobbly, but Michael Clark, he was the captain. He was in top form. I mean, he could not be faulted. I mean, people mm. look at Steve Smith and Dave Warner these days and think, oh, yeah, they're the next Bradman. But back at the time, people were seriously saying that Clark was a modern-day Bradman. He was, he was an incredible cricketer. I mean, say what you like about his personality, about his captaincy, about his on-field demeanor. I thought his captaincy was okay, to be honest. But yeah, he was a phenomenal batsman. And to make this score and to, you know, quite selflessly uh, call a declaration after his teammate Mike Hussey had made 150 before he had the opportunity to beat Don Bradman's uh, immortal score of 334. Mm. Um, 
yeah, he just decided to walk off the field. And, of course, they did have a game to win, and they won the game. And it was just a masterclass in batting, that was. Yeah, so. could you imagine if you beat Bradman's score, though? Oh, everyone would have gone. I mean, it, we saw what happened when Dave mm. Warner did it. The crowd just went off. Oh, <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Understandably. I mean, yeah. it, it's an amazing feat. It's an incredible feat. Yeah, of course, uh, he's... Neither of them are the highest Australian uh, run scorers. That title belongs to Matthew Hayden, who made 380, and he was beaten not long after by Brian Lara, who made a score of 400, not out. Mm. Yes. Okay, let's move on to your pick, Jacob, and this is no surprise <laughs> at all, really. So, so uh, for me, it has to be the Collingwood-St Kilda Grand Final from 2010, mm. both the draw and the rematch. Oh, yeah, I um, forgot there was a draw. I mean, in fact, a lot of people forget there was a draw unless you're a St Kilda fan. Yeah, just... <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to all of our Saints fans listening. Ooh. <laughs> no, but um, just to run back, so anyone who might have forgotten the scores were on the draw day, uh, nine, sorry, nine goals, 14, 68, Collingwood, um, and 10 goals, six, uh, sorry, 10 goals, 8, 68, of course, mm. for St Kilda. Now, this, as a Collingwood fan, looking back, we should not have gotten that close. Mm. We had a lot, a lot of very, very lucky bounces. Um, I know for the next five years, there was, uh, within Collingwood's community, uh, the famous The Bounce. Um, <laughs> and just a reminder that, you know, the weird egg-shaped ball is an amazing little thing. It is an amazing <laughs> thing. It could go either way, and sometimes it just goes the way you want it to. And I also think it's probably one of the best examples of maybe the strongest teams of the decade. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, I would like, say so. Current, current Richmond would give them a bit of a run. Uh, Hawthorne with their three-peat team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There have been some strong teams, but Collingwood and St Kilda coming out of um, the noughties, uh, you know, they they were some of the best. And, it, like, unfortunately for St Kilda, um, the rematch was kind of one-sided. It was a very one-sided. It was a capacity crowd, if I remember correctly. More than 100,000 mm. people turned up. Oh, those were the days. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Collingwood won the next game convincingly. But I suppose that is what football is all about. I mean, you need mm. to be performing consistently week on week. You can't just, you know, put all your effort into the one game. But then again, the teams might not have known to be playing a game the next week. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember news coverage going on everywhere, and mm. I think it was Julia Gillard at the time yep. who actually announced that there would be a rematch. Which can you imagine Scott Morrison coming on to go? Oh, we're going to have a rematch for uh, Richmond and GWS again. Oh, he, he doesn't know how football works. He's an NRL fan. Uh, true, true. <laughs> sorry, Mr. Morrison, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> returning to cricket now, another one of my picks was the. Uh, Ashes Tour of 2013-14 where England came to Australia. So the previous year, Michael Clarke made his phenomenal 329 not out. And on this particular occasion, the Aussies absolutely trounced England 5-0. Mitchell Johnson taking 34 wickets for the series, being man of the series. That first match in Brisbane where Michael Clarke threatened to break Jimmy Anderson's arm. Never forget that. Mm. Uh, Of course, we don't condone that. No, no, definitely don't do that. Don't but, condone it, but it was But, yeah, it was one of the strongest Australian teams we've ever seen, um, headed by one of the best captains we've ever seen, um, and a pretty strong England side as well. I mean, we can't underestimate them. They had a great bowling attack. They had some great batman, batsmen there. But still, they dominate the Australians in England, but they can't dominate overseas. Mm. 
Yeah, but it was. I see this as retribution for the time that England won in Australia, for them winning the last the two England tours that the Australian tour was sandwiched between. So, yeah, it just felt like sweet revenge. <laughs> sweet revenge is what I'd call it. Speaking of sweet revenge. Oh, yes, yes. My one. So I've got the 2018 semi-final, mm. uh, Richmond versus Collingwood. Mm. Now, I'm not sure if you remember, but going into it, no one in their right mind thought Collingwood was going to win. Even Collingwood fans were going, uh, this is going to be a bit of a no, Richmond game. all the momentum was with Richmond. And I do remember that. I think one of my favourite things being a Collingwood fan is being able to upset people Mm. by winning, Um, especially as convincingly as we did. Mm. Mason Cox had the game of his life, Mm. to goey, all sorts. And just looking back, it's such a fun game to look at because it's it's watching a crowd um, turn really quickly and Mm. go, whoa, what's happening here? Mm. This shouldn't be happening. This is an exciting game. Mm. And I, no, no, I did get to watch this one. and I was at a friend's place, and I had to turn it on about halfway through, and I was yelling and screaming at the TV. I was ringing my dad halfway through going, we've made it, we're going. <laughs> and, oh, and, of course, you did make it to the grand final that year. We don't talk about what happened a week later. That's, that's just, we're not talking about that yet. <laughs> no, but I, I honestly, um, as, as a Collingwood fan, as someone who's you know, watched all the semis um, and all the chances we've had, Getting to the grand final is more exciting to me than the actual grand final because it's that last step. You're almost at the podium. And, of it, course, your team is renowned for having the what's called the Collie Wobbles. Yes. You've lost more grand finals than any other team in history. Look, I mean, we've made more than any other. Mm. <laughs> it, it's a, uh... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to bring that up. Um, All goods. But uh, you are listening to the Sports Desk on Sin on a Wednesday with Jacob and Tom. We are currently discussing our favourite sporting moment from the last decade, 2010 to 2019, because there's not much else happening in the world right now. Yeah. Okay. My pick uh, following on from the AFL is the Western Bulldogs and their 2016 AFL season. Now, our co-producer, Caleb, he's a dog supporter. He'll be absolutely rapt to hear this. Uh, but no, what a phenomenal year. I mean, this is a team which had their best players sidelined through injury. Their captain, of course, Mm. Bob Murphy, he had to sit out a full season. They had to bring in lots of their players from the reserves, and they still managed to win the 2016 Grand Final. And also, bearing in mind, they came from eighth on the ladder. Okay, they had to play and win three consecutive weeks of football just to make it there. It was the first Grand Final they'd made in decades, and it was eventually their first win in 53 years. Oh, I mean, yeah. What a team. And you, you I, it just absolutely amazes me. I mean, when you also consider that Luke Beveridge, the previous season, they were talking of sacking him, and then he completely turns it, much like Damien Hardwick has done mm. with the Tigers, he's just developed this really positive culture within the team. He's got everybody supporting one another, um, you know, getting everybody in the crew together after the game to sing the team song. You know, he has done wonders for that club. Mm. And even though they haven't been doing so well the past couple of years, you know, it, everyone wants to be a part of the Bulldogs now. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Even, even going into this year, while the season was uh, still looking bright, mm. um, they were all I've every list I've seen everybody predicting their eight in their top four. Uh, the Bulldogs were in that eight as a possible uh, fourth place. They're they're in contention again, and this is mm. something that three or four, not three or four years mm. ago, but five, six, seven years ago, you wouldn't have dreamt about. 
and no, not at all. no, and that 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 that, that, that season, that was an amazing season to watch because um, I don't I'm not a doggies fan myself, obviously, but um, I remember getting really hyped and really excited to watch them mm. uh, make it through, and that grand final. Oh, mm. the it was inspirational to watch. It and, was, it oh. was just absolutely beautiful stuff. Now, Jacob, what's your next pick for the best sporting moments of the 2010s? So my one, so my next one is actually last year, mm. and I love the game because it had me on the edge of my seat the entire time, even mm. if it was heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, so the 2019 uh, prelim between Collingwood and GWS. Mm-hmm. Now we came so so close to it. And admittedly, the first three quarters aren't much. It's Collingwood getting wiped. Yeah. Uh, that last quarter was some of the best and most on-your-edge uh, footy I've ever seen. Mm. Uh, we got five goals, five points uh, within uh, about 20 minutes, and we spent the next 10 minutes in the forward line a goal away from uh, winning. Mm. And every time you got anywhere near the square, you could hear this crowd just build up and build yeah. up and build up. I was sitting there and I remember uh, watching it. Um, my dad had walked out because three-quarter time, we didn't look like we were even mm. in the game. And I remember calling him over and going, hey, uh, we're, we're actually in this. We might <laughs> we might pull this off. Mm. And um, no, I think as much as it was a loss, it was the most entertaining game mm. for the last 10 or so minutes. I specifically remember there was a moment, Pen- Pendlebury actually, mm. running into the square, ball in hand. He's kicked it. And about a meter out from the goal square, uh, from the goal, mm. uh, it's smothered. And like, as much as it was heartbreaking, mm. I remember going, oh, "No!" <laughs> and like, genuine emotion. And ah, mm. oh, I don't think you can get that from too many games the way you can from that. Well, not anymore. No. No. <laughs> oh dear. I'm sorry to bring the mood down, everybody. But oh, um, I've got one more to share with everybody. And that is uh, Tennis Australian Open, Roger Federer's 2017 title win. It was his first major in, I think, four or five years. He was playing against his old rival, Rafael Nadal. He was nearing 40, and he managed to win in five sets. It was a phenomenal game, and just everybody at Melbourne Park was in Roger's quarter. Everybody loves Roger, Mm. and to see his sheer... Jubilation as he won. It was extraordinary. I mean, this was a man who's been through so much, like injury wise, Mm. and to come back and to win at an age where most tennis players would be, you know, in the veterans tournament. Yeah. It's just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it was just such a beautiful moment. And it was also at a time of great uncertainty around Mm. the world. I mean, compared with now. I mean, it seems like nothing. But, yeah, at the time, a lot of people were really worried about where the world is heading. To see him win was like, yes, everything's okay. <laughs> Everything is okay in the world. Yeah, every now and then you just need that kind of moment mm. and uh, it makes a difference. And before we wrap up, Jacob, you've got uh, two more picks just quickly. Uh, well, I'm going to go through just one of them. Yep. Um, so, as, as I've said uh, previously, I w- I'm a big uh, professional wrestling fan, yeah. and um, I know it's whether or not it's a sport is up to up the debate, but um, in 2011, uh, Adam Copeland, or Edge, was forced to retire. Mm. In the 2020 Royal Rumble, mm. uh, he returned uh, nine years after a sty- spinal stenosis, mm. an injury that you do not recover from mm. um, at all. Uh, and if you want to see, I guess, someone just loving the fact they're back. Someone I, I remember watching him uh, come out and almost crying because this bloke was my favourite for years. And you could see it on his face. He was enjoying it. And I think as much as, yeah, it's predetermined, um, 
that kind of moment is one of the best things to see in any sport, hmm. that kind of return. As you said, Federer. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of stuff you live for. And, you know, maybe coming back 2020, uh, 2021, sorry, mm. um, we'll get some big returns. We'll get some of the big names coming back. We'll get, I imagine we'll get a last season for uh, players like Ablett. Mm. Uh, Pendlebury must be close now. And, you know, this will be a good send-off. And you can imagine you'll see, like in this video, uh, if you search it up, mm. the passion in their eyes and you know that's unmistakable and that was jacob and i discussing our favorite sporting moments from the previous decade and that brings our show to an end for today and the season i'd like to thank everybody for tuning in over the past few weeks to the wednesday edition of the sports desk i hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as i've enjoyed putting it together and hosting it I'd like to thank my regular co-host Jacob Scanlon for joining me throughout the season and I'd also like to thank James Worth and Daniel from Get Serial for filling in. It's been absolute fun hosting with all three of you. I'm not sure when I'll be making a return to your airwaves but rest assured there is more Sports Desk to come. You can hear our show every Monday, Wednesday and Friday from 9am over the next few weeks and for the foreseeable future. We'll be here whether there's sport running or not and don't forget that you can check us out at any time on our socials at Sports Desk SYN on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I've been Tom Parry. Keep well, stay safe, and keep listening to Sports Desk.